traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Welcome to the Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. And welcome to Radio Free Canada, news notes and opinions from the underground and the international headquarters for male the male patriarchy and uh, what? What else do we call it? Oh, toxic masculinity. Don't forget about that. Uh, <laughs> it is Tuesday, Jan 11th, 2022. Yesterday, I was talking to you about uh, how more and more people in officialdom and the media are suddenly inexplicably reversing their messaging on COVID. The New York Times, as I mentioned, suddenly admitting that Omicron is just a really bad cold, which is true. The governor of New York, uh, and Christine Elliott here in Ontario, finally admitting COVID hospitalization numbers have been wildly exaggerated because they were including hospital admissions with, with COVID, with COVID, like a patient admitted with a sprained ankle or a stroke who then tested positive for COVID. In Ontario, that's about 43% of hospitalizations. These are patients who just happen to have COVID, uh, a positive COVID test. That's called an incidental COVID admission. Yesterday, we had the head of the CDC, Rochelle Walensky, admit that three quarters, three quarters of all reported COVID deaths in the U.S. were people who died with COVID, not from COVID. These were people who had at least four serious comorbidities. In other words, these were people who were dying from other illnesses, and they also happened to have been tested positive for COVID, quite possibly, quite likely a false positive. If it's 75% in the U.S., 75%, and we know it was around 90% in Italy, it's the same in Canada. This is all coming out now. Anybody who actually follows the data in the foreign press and actual scientists, not TV doctors, we've known about this for two years, two years This is all coming out now, I believe, because in part, 
They want to desperately get ahead of the Pfizer data. On Thursday, as I mentioned, last week, Thursday last week, a federal judge in Texas told Pfizer they had to release, what is it, something like a half million pages of data within eight months. Initially, they they wanted 75 years. So all these people admitting what many of us have known from the beginning are trying to get on the right side of history, trying to go on the record before the Pfizer data comes out. But it's too late. Here's a, a frickin' frack, dumb and dumber, Jake Tapper and Dr. Sanjay Gupta from the Clown News Network, CNN, thinking they can reclaim their network's long-lost credibility by po- pointing out how the hospitalized, hospitalization numbers have been fudged. The hospitals are still stretched thin because of this, so I'm not trying to take away from that. But if 40% in some hospitals, 40% of the people who have COVID don't necessarily have problematic COVID. They're there because they got in a car accident. They get, they're there because right. um, you know they, they bump their head. And they're being included as in the hospital with COVID. That number seems kind of misleading. Yeah, I agree, Jake. It surprises me that they have not been able to parse out that data more carefully. I think the data that uh, Dr. Olensky is quoting is from New York State, and we've been following that data as well. And I can show you what we've seen, uh, sort of sort of tracks with what she said. But out of all the patients that are in the hospital, about 57 percent, these are COVID patients, admitted because of or complications from COVID, 43 percent admitted for other reasons and then diagnosed with COVID. Uh, I think, you know, there needs to be transparency about that uh, in terms of for or with COVID. The only thing I will tell you, Jake, again, working in the hospital is that at the time someone is then diagnosed with COVID, even if they didn't come in for that reason, it does take up a a lot of resources then in terms of infection protocols, personal protective equipment, more testing, all that kind of stuff. So even though that may not have been the initial impetus to bring him in the hospital, it it just requires a lot lot of energy and resources uh, on behalf of the hospital staff and, and, and the the testing and all that sort of stuff. So they, we need to get better about being able to see this data. New York State, I think, is one of the few states that's presenting it that way for or with COVID, but other states should follow suit. The American Heart Association, I'm sorry, American Health Association says they have a hard time sort of separating out that data, but clearly New York State's been able to do it. Other states should do it as well. Yeah, we're two years into this and to, we need the clearest picture possible. If somebody's in the hospital with a broken leg and they also have asymptomatic COVID, yeah. that should not be counted is hospitalized with COVID, clearly. Ah, kind of misleading. Is that what Jake Tapper said? It's kind of misleading. No, it's it's totally misleading. They haven't been able to parse out that data, says Dr. Gupta. They haven't been able to parse out that data. The American Health Association says they have a hard time separating the from COVID with if That's nonsense. That's nonsense. Absolute and utter horse hockey. So, again, the media always uh, slow to the dance. The band is already packed up and left and they're just arriving. You don't get to switch teams with two minutes left in the first quarter or the, the fourth quarter when you're down 54 to nothing. The entire COVID narrative, it's all crumbling and you helped build this sinister house of cards. It's all coming down and you have to live in it and own it as it comes down around you. You're not fooling anybody. 
This reminds me of the, the collaborators in the Second World War who were working for the enemy. And then when the war was over, they tried desperately to distance themselves from the enemy. They tried desperately to deny they collaborated. It's too late. We've got your number. Let's listen again to Rochelle Walensky, who is, again, two years late to the dance. The overwhelming number of deaths, over 75%, occurred in people who had at least four comorbidities. So really, these are people who were unwell to begin with. The overwhelming number of deaths, over 75%, occurred in people who had at least four comorbidities. So really, these are people who were unwell to begin with. The overwhelming number of deaths, over 75%, occurred in people who had at least four comorbidities. So really, these are people who were unwell to begin with. Did anyone hear that on the mainstream uh, news last night? Why is that not splashed across the front page of the National Post and the Toronto, I won't mention that newspaper, the Toronto Sun, I will mention the Toronto Sun. Did I miss something? This is major, major news. All right, so Premier Ford says schools will reopen for in-person learning on January 17th, as originally planned. I don't believe this has anything to do with the science. That's based on polling. And the sentiment in Ontario is changing rapidly. And they're polling is telling them this. It's always been about polling, never the science. Students, students do not get sick from COVID. They don't spread COVID. Schools are not super spreaders. There's never been any data to suggest otherwise. This hasn't stopped the, uh, the Toronto School Board from voting in favor of mandatory COVID vaccines for students. Do these trustees ever open a book? Obviously, they've never sat down and actually examined the data. They voted 13 to 4 in favor of mandatory vaccines. 13 to 4. What a bunch of neurotic hypochondriacs. Sue Ann Levy from True North will be here in hour two to discuss. Someone else who doesn't care about the science, who doesn't care about data, who seems bound and determined to wreck the Canadian economy. He wants to drive up inflation. He wants to create supply chain problems and food shortages. So he's pushing ahead with plans to go ahead with a vaccine mandate for cross-border truckers. You know, the people who deliver our food. And by some estimates, that could force about 10% of truckers off the road. I love the truckers. In the end, it may be the truckers who put an end to this nonsense. They have the power right now. I hope 25% of truckers stay home. Don't get me wrong. We're really going to feel it. It could bring the economy to a standstill, but that could break the government's back. The pressure to end all of the uh, vax mandates would be immense. You know why the truckers are doing this? Because they listen to talk radio, because they're informed. If you want to know what's happening in the world, you don't talk to a sociology professor at York University. You talk to a truck driver and a taxi driver. Think about it. They're in the vehicle all day listening to talk radio. So when this madness ends, it may be due to the truck drivers. In the meantime, you may want to stock up on supplies, food. Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, will, will be here in hour two uh, to discuss the uh, trucking situation. Andrew Lawton from True North will be here to discuss whether the prime minister has lost his mind 
And I'll ask Andrew what he means when he says the pandemic is over when Canadians say it's over. I think I have an idea what he means. Coming up, uh, coming up this hour. It's Tuesday. That means homeschooling advice from homeschooling parent and educator Ruth Gaskowski. She'll be here with a homeschooling toolbox for non-homeschooling parents. But coming up first, is Canada destined to become the Venezuela of the North? Former Intel officer, writer, host of the Quiggin Report podcast, Tom Quiggin believes if present trends continue, Justin Trudeau will successfully transform himself into the late Venezuelan dictator Hugo Chavez. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. That conversation is coming up in three minutes. The Richard Serrett Show is off and running for Tuesday, Jan 11th, 2022. Keep your stick on the ice. We're back as The Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Well, if uh, present political and economic trends continue in Canada, we may be destined to become the Venezuela of the North. Tom Quiggin is a former Intel officer, author of the Great Reset Trilogy and host of the Quiggin Report podcast. Hey, Tom, welcome aboard. How are you? Good afternoon, uh, Richard, and thanks for inviting me to Saga Radio 960. Hey, my pleasure. It's uh, great to finally connect. I, uh, I enjoy your uh, your tweets immensely. Now, I happen to think that you're you're right on the money here in terms of comparing Trudeau with Chavez. But I'm thinking some of my listeners might be saying, wait a minute, has the cheese slid off the cracker here? Are you how can you possibly compare Trudeau with the late Venezuelan dictator Hugo Chavez? Just give us a quick overview, uh, sort of a comparison, Trudeau and uh, Chavez. Yeah, well, I'm with you, Richard. If somebody had told me five years ago we'd be sitting here talking about a comparison between the leader of Venezuela and the leader of Canada, I'd have, I don't know what I've done. I just laughed and walked away. Um, uh, you're wanting to know I may have ex military. I've traveled around the world. I've been in some of the nicest places in the world. I've also been in some of the worst, like Albania and Bosnia and Croatia. But what I'm starting to believe over the last few years is that, yeah, we are on a parallel path. Uh, down a road which most Canadians don't understand. So why would I say that? Well, let's look at uh, Hugo Chavez, who ran Yugoslavia from 1990, or uh, sorry, ran Venezuela from 1999 to 2013, uh, and Justin Trudeau, who's now been prime minister here for six years. 
Both of them, for instance, are strongly anti-media. They're both anti-free speech. Uh, both of them are socialist in orientation. It's interesting to note that Hugo Chavez was an open socialist. He said it out loud. Justin Trudeau is a little more careful in his wording. He says Canada is a post national society. He says he supports the Great Reset. Our Deputy Prime Minister, by the way, Christy Freeland, who's also our Finance Minister, is on the Board of Directors of the World Economic Forum, which advocates for stakeholder capitalism, which is a polite way of saying a centrally controlled economy, a command economy. Folks might remember- Or own nothing, own nothing and be happy. Exactly. That was going to be my next statement. <laughs> what people know the World Economic Forum is that statement. Welcome to 2030. You'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Uh, absolutely terrifying stuff. Also, the guy who's head of the World Economic Forum wrote a book called COVID-19, The Great Reset. Um, Trudeau, on his own uh, website, like the prime minister's office, has supported the idea of a great reset. Now, when you look at the great reset, what it means is an elite driven command-driven economy where everything is controlled from the center, which, of course, mirrors exactly what uh, Chavez was doing. So if we look at Hugo Chavez, when he took over in 1999, there were no dramatic changes. There wasn't gunfire in the street. He didn't hang people from lampposts or anything like that. It was a gradual process, which took place over a period of years. So 1999, he's in power. By 2004, 2005, people realize things are going wrong. And if you look at Canada, we're in that same position right now. If you drive down a street in Ottawa or Montreal or Red Deer, you know, things look normal enough. But if you look beneath the hood, there are significant problems. So what problems would I look at? One is, for instance, debt, uh, uncontrolled spending. Since Trudeau's been in power, they have been spending money like it's going out of style. And by the way, printing money like it's going out of style uh, with little to no actual value in the in the sense of creating infrastructure or creating industry. It's right, all well, to that point. How, how many billions did Catherine McKenna lose track of? Just like, uh, whoops, where did that go? Yeah, it's tens of billions of dollars they can't account for. And that was one program in one department. It's worth noting uh, during the pandemic spending and about 18 months of pandemic spending, the government of Canada spent more money adjusted for inflation than Canada spent during World War II. We are now over a trillion dollars in debt in Canada, and we're moving into sort of like American style spending where we're just spending money like far beyond any realistic ability to pay it back. The other thing that started happening in uh, Venezuela in about 203, 204, 205, it became really obvious that the smart money or the investment money started leaving Venezuela. People looked around and the smart folks said, you know what, this place is going downhill. It's time to quit. It's time to get the money out. So in Canada in 2015, there was investment inflow into Canada. About $60 billion a year would enter the country to be invested in various industries, business, commerce, whatever. Well, once Trudeau's in power by 2017, that drops to about $30 billion a year, and then it drops to $25 billion a year in 2019, and it's going down even more. The other thing that's more disturbing, though, is the outflow of money. When Trudeau took over, it was about $50 billion a year. Now it's about $80 billion a year is leaving the country. So less money is coming in, more money is going out. That's because outsiders and the smart people are looking at Canada and they're saying it's a bad bet for the future. Right. So uh, you, the other thing that you mentioned in, um, in kind of the overview of comparing Trudeau with Chavez uh, are both anti-oil industry. So here we have two uh, countries that are blessed 
with natural resources and oil, which uh, are the drivers of the economy and um, uh, uh, both taking a stand against their own oil industries uh, and with Chavez, of course. I mean, that, that that country should be so wealthy and the people should be so the standard of living there should be incredible. Uh, and yet, you know, 10 years of Chavez and, and the people are forced to eat their own pets. Uh, we'll uh, take a quick time out. Uh, Tom Quiggan stays with us, the host of the Quiggan Report podcast. We'll also tell you about uh, the Great Reset trilogy, a, a piece of fiction uh, or maybe not. <laughs> we'll come back and uh, discuss further. The Richard Serrett Show continues in about three minutes. Don't go away. Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serrett Show. Tom Quiggan, former Intel officer and uh, writer, host of the Quiggan Report podcast at Quiggan Report. You can follow on Twitter at Quiggan Report. How do we listen uh, to the podcast, Tom? Uh, the podcast is available on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple, iTunes, all the usual sort of places, or just go into uh, uh, Google or something like that and type in Quiggin Report, and it should come up uh, without any problem. And Quiggin is Q-U-I-G-G-I-N, Q-U-I-G-G-I-N, Tom Quiggin. We were talking about Chavez and Trudeau and uh, the similarities. Um did uh, did Trudeau? I mean, he he loves to uh, you know express his his admiration with uh, other dictators like Castro, and uh, his father was uh, a great admirer of Castro and 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 Mao. Uh, did Trudeau ever? Well, I know that uh, that Chavez was before Trudeau came into to office, but is there any record of Trudeau ever admiring Chavez? Uh, Trudeau, as you mentioned, is a big admirer of Castro. Castro and Chavez were big admirers of each other. What I have heard, I've never heard Trudeau openly speak on uh, Chavez and say, well, one way or the other. He's never said anything disparaging about him either. But I have heard for a number of folks that in the case of both Colombia and Venezuela, the Liberal Party has had people go down there to meet with political contacts there. And when I heard that, I was just shocked, like, why would anybody want to imitate what they're doing in Venezuela or, you know, Colombia? Uh, but yet, nonetheless, the contacts are there. And of course, there's a certain degree of commonality, as you mentioned. Uh, both are anti-oil industry. Uh, Trudeau has done pretty much everything he can to abuse the oil industry here. Chavez started out by taxing it. Uh, then he started putting controls on it. And then he nationalized it. He just seized the oil companies. And then in an absolutely bizarre move, he refused to invest any money in them. So when the managers of the oil industry would say, look, you know, the pumps are getting bad. The, the pipelines are getting bad. The refineries are getting bad. You need to spend some money to keep the industry up. He refused and just continued to extract wealth to increase social welfare spending and dependency and refused to do anything to support his own oil industry, which is what made Venezuela rich before. So, of course, if you look at the, the parallels there, it's quite stunning. The other thing that really jumps out at me is when Chavez took over, he would rant and rave about the bourgeoisie and he'd rant and rave about how the Jews controlled the banking industry and all that kind of stuff. Quite an anti-Semitic outfit. But you see the same thing is starting to happen here. Anti-Semitism is growing in Canada. But the, the disturbing thing is the canary in the coal mine, if you will, is Canada Mortgage and Housing just came out. They got caught with another study where they're looking at how they can tax your home to get more money out of you. There's a lot of wealth in home ownership. The government knows it and they want that wealth. The question is, how do they get it? 
So one proposal was floated for a capital gains tax that if you sold your primary residence that you'd own for 35 or 40 years, you would have to pay tax on the difference between the cost and what you sold it for. Now they've got another proposal out where they're saying, well, you know, it's only the rich. We're only looking at million dollar homes. We're going to put a yearly surtax on your house. Well, if you live in Summerside PEI, a million dollar home is pretty impressive. If you live in uh, Etobicoke or anywhere in Toronto or Montreal or increasingly even in Ottawa, a million dollar home is not exceptional anymore. It's becoming the average. And with inflation and the housing market going through the roof, jumping at 15, 20 percent a year, a whole lot of people are going to wind up owning million dollar homes. And what they're saying is, we want the wealth you have in your house and we're coming for it. Exactly- that was uh, the the, um, the study, I think, was commissioned from UBC. I don't know, these um, Marxist researchers that they they hired. They referred to uh, homeowners as uh, lazy homeowners who make money while they sleep and watch TV. Yeah. So it's interesting. If you're one of these lazy homeowners that owns a, you know, a million dollar home in Toronto, chances are what you are is you're 65 years old. You bought the house uh, 35 years ago when it was $150,000. You and perhaps your wife or spouse worked for 25 years to pay the mortgage on that house. And now that the government, through policies of money printing. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy inflation and through mass immigration. Now that the government's driving the value of your house up, they say, oh, well, we want that money because, you know, you didn't really make that money, did you? It's, it's that sort of Obama thing that, well, you didn't really create that. And the answer is, well, yeah, they did. They worked. They had jobs. They paid for those houses. They had mortgages. And now they're saying, oh, well, we want to take that money from you because, well, we're just basically jealous. But the same thing with uh, Chavez in uh, Venezuela. He started at the top. He went after the Jews and seized their property. Uh, and then he went after the the ultra rich, uh, those people that own large industries in Venezuela and literally just started seizing their property, seizing their money. And nobody said anything. And this is kind of like 2003, 2004, 2005. And then, of course, he went after the upper middle class and then he went after the middle class. And when they finally ran out of money, he actually started sending thugs in to shake down money from little tiny local stores. So in a lot of Venezuela, what you'll find in a neighborhood is rather than a 7-Eleven or a Probigo or something like that, what you'll have is somebody that runs a little store in the living room of their house and they'll have cigarettes and soup and you know vegetables and that kind of thing. So they actually send money in. To, they started sending thugs in to shake those people down for more tax money. In other words, they went from the super top right down to the super bottom and extracted all the wealth out of them, which is why Venezuela turned into a sort of have-not country for from once upon a time having been a, a pretty impressive place. 
Right. It, because socialism in the beginning, it's it's great. You look like a hero. It works. I mean, you you skim off the top, you distribute it to the poor. They think you're a genius. But then, as Margaret Thatcher, Thatcher uh, so famously said, the problem with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money. Uh, Tom Quiggan is here at Quiggan Report uh, is the, uh, the the Twitter handle. If you want to uh, follow the Twitter podcast uh, or sorry, the Twitter for the podcast, the Quiggan Report. And uh, we're comparing or Tom is making the comparison between uh, our crime minister, Justin Trudeau, and the late Venezuelan dictator, Hugo Chavez. And uh, we'll uh, continue. We'll take one final time out, come back and uh, discuss for a few moments yet with Tom Quiggan. Back with more of The Richard Serrett Show in three minutes. Don't go away. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 a.m. A few minutes remain with Tom Quiggan, the Quiggan Report podcast. Uh, Tom, uh, tell me about this uh, Great Reset trilogy, this uh, series of sort of thriller fiction books you're working on. Well, the first book is out. It's called The New Order of Fear. It's available on Amazon. Um, it is an attempt by myself, who's an ex-intelligence officer, ex-military guy, former search and rescue in the military. And I, like I said, I spent time in crazy places like Bosnia, Albania, Croatia, Belarus, Russia. And a few years Ontario. ago, I, <laughs> Ontario, now Ontario. Yeah, one of the most oppressive uh, regimes, the government of Ontario. Um, when I first started looking at the Great Reset, about three or four. Well, I think Tom froze. Andrew Shear is a member of the uh, uh, a member of the World Economic Forum. We have other people who are also members of that, such as our beloved deputy uh, prime minister and finance minister. So I started realizing this great great reset thing is not a joke. They're doing it. They want to do it. So the fictional book is sort of a spy thriller intelligence book, but what it's actually doing is through fiction is examining what could go wrong with the great reset and what sort of society we're going to look at. Once the Great Reset is done with us. So the first book is out. The second book is almost finished. So if folks are interested in trying to understand where the World Economic Forum wants to take us, where Christy Freeland wants to take us, where Joe Biden and Kamala Harris want to take us, this is one way of exploring what the future looks like, uh, Richard. So uh, we were talking about, obviously, the aim here is socialism. And you, as you point out, Chavez was very direct about it. I mean, he wore it on his shirt sleeve. Uh, Trudeau is being a little more coy about it. But the the object first is in order to get there, you have to create dependency. So when I look at what's happening right now, inflation uh, and um, and the government doesn't seem to be very concerned about it. Uh, they also don't seem to be concerned about uh, seriously disrupting the supply chain. So we've got um, uh, U.S. truckers, maybe 10 percent, maybe more who are, are going to be off the road because of these uh, vax mandates. That's going to be seriously disrupting uh, food supply up here. They don't seem to care or Trudeau doesn't seem to care. Is that all by design, again, in order to create this dependency? Yeah, it's not so much that he doesn't care. Um, it's that it works towards the goal of dependency. And like you mentioned, Chavez was open about it, Trudeau less so. But Trudeau is working to essentially seize control of all the institutions of power in Canada and make them work for him. So, I mean, essentially, most of the mainstream media has been politicized by a $600 million handout. A number of people commenting the RCMP is no longer capable of functioning, especially when it comes to white collar crime or crimes from the government. The Bank of Canada is now a supporter of the Great Reset. 
Parliament has been undermined to a point where it's almost irrelevant. And in the last election, our electoral process has become so skewed that Justin Trudeau is the prime minister after having got 20 percent of all registered voters to vote for him. So my argument in our most recent podcast, uh, which just came out, I think it was yesterday, uh, we're actually saying that, you know, Justin Trudeau, people saying he's trying to destroy Canada. But what I'm actually arguing is he's trying to turn Canada into a one party democracy where only the prime minister's office and the Liberal Party matters and everything else works for them, uh, where the institutions of the state don't have any influence, such as the military, the border services, people, the RCMP. And we're looking at a situation in Canada now where our opposition parties, particularly the conservatives, not going to get into the whole thing, but to put it politely, they're ineffective. Uh, and if they that is only- polite, that is very polite. <laughs> oh, I think he's froze there again, Tom. I'm not sure if Tom Quiggin can hear me, but he's uh, he's frozen. Was it something I said? I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe he'll come back around. Uh, Tom Quiggin, you can follow him on Twitter. And uh, the Quiggin Report Connection. podcast at Quiggin Report. Sorry, Tom, you froze there for a moment. Um, so we were you were saying to be polite, the opposition is ineffective. And I was saying that's very polite. Then you froze. So uh, if you just. Oh, wanna- OK, I just so I'm just saying I believe that we're in a situation now where the next election in Canada may be the last election that matters. In other words, Trudeau's got another two or three or four years in power. If he continues to undermine the institutions of power in Canada, like he's done in the first six years, we'll be in a position where I genuinely believe we'll have a one party democracy where all aspects of government will be tightly and centrally controlled by a series of elitists uh, through a World Economic Forum style government. And when you look at who runs Canada right now, it's Justin Trudeau, Gerard Butts, Omar Algebra is a big player in this. Mark Holland is a big player. Patty Hajdu is a big player. Christy Freeland, I think, is one of the biggest players of all. And uh, what about Mark folks- Carney? What about Carney? Mark Carney sitting in the wings. I have to be careful what I say because I used to work for the Bank of Canada and I got in some trouble with them for saying the wrong stuff about them. But to to put it bluntly, uh, without getting into details, I would say Mark Carney is one of the scariest people around. He is a huge part of the United Nations attempt to drive uh, capital from the countries such as Canada, the U.S., whatever, into the third world. He's a huge part of the whole climate control, climate discussion. Uh, He's the smartest guy in the room. I'll give him that. Uh, He's an incredibly clever man. But I think he is incredibly dangerous to the future of Canada if you think of Canada as a capitalistic free democracy. Uh, He's a threat to that. We always seem to be behind the curve in this country, Tom. We see populist uh, uprisings across Europe now, places like Poland and Hungary. We had Brexit and then we had uh, Trump. Maybe there'll be Trump uh, version 2.0 in 2024. Uh, is that a possibility in in sort of a, as a reaction to what's been taking place here the last, uh, well, 2015, six, seven years? Could we see a populist uprising in Canada at the polling booths, I mean? Uh, at the polling booths, it's difficult to say because the the mainstream media, for the most part, has become uh, put under the under the will of the government, if you will. It's become politicized to a point now where much of the mainstream media spends more time criticizing the opposition than it does holding the government to account, which is their actual job in a democracy. And by the way, just just so we're on the record. 
No functioning media equals no functioning democracy. Bottom line, one cannot exist without the other. So a uprising at the polls, as you call it, I suppose is always a possibility. But when you bring in, say, 400,000 people in a single year and promise those people they can get citizenship in three years and then tell them you have to vote liberal or you're going to lose all your welfare and your handouts and everything else, it's very hard to get folks to move away from the free stuff. And as I pointed out earlier, folks look into it right now. In the last couple of elections, Justin Trudeau got elected, I think, the second time with about 23 percent of all registered voters in Canada voting for him. And the last time it was about 20.6 percent of all registered voters voting for him. So the way the system is built right now, the way it works, the way the population is growing in places like Toronto um, is we're seeing increasing amount of central control through Toronto, Montreal and Ottawa and an increasing amount of irrelevance from the rest of the country when it comes to electoral outcomes. So if all you need to do is keep 20 percent of the people on the hook and tell them that if you don't support me, I will make sure your dependencies, your welfare, your social handouts, your job sinecures, your 15 different people in the health ministry that have, you know, $100,000 a year jobs. If we don't, if uh, those people are able to vote, if they keep that level at 20 percent, then the government can stay in power. Well, on that cheery note, <laughs> Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, Tom Quiggan. Uh, Tom, we'll have to do this again. I enjoyed it. Uh, and thank you for your uh, insights. And again, the Quiggan Report podcast available through uh, Stitcher. And uh, just, Google, just Google it, the Quiggan Report. Tom, uh, until next time, thank you so much. Cheers. Thanks, Richard. When we come back, homeschooling advice, a homeschooling toolbox for non-homeschooling parents. That's coming up next. Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Welcome back. Tuesday, we uh, dispense a little homeschooling advice and offer some tips and resources for homeschooling parents. And now not uh, not just homeschooling parents, but non-homeschooling parents uh, suddenly have seen themselves cast in the role as uh, homeschoolers because of remote learning, but also because of uh, the deficiencies now in uh, the public schools, when their kids come home, often uh, the parents have to sit down with their children and, and uh, redo those lessons or re, uh, reinforce those lessons. So uh, Ruth Gaskowski, our homeschooling advisor, has uh, put together or is working on a homeschooling toolbox for non-homeschooling parents. Ruth, welcome once again. How are you? Great, Richard. Thanks for having me. So what are some of the the, uh, the challenges uh, that let's call them non-homeschooling parents are facing now with with their children that suddenly sort of cast them in the role as homeschoolers? Right. Yeah, I think uh, although they've probably had some practice by now because this is not the first time that they've been thrown into this role, I think there's still some things that we have to figure out in uh, living daily life at home with kids, uh, often while par- parents still also have to work. So as you mentioned, I've put together a toolbox and I'll just highlight a couple things here in daily life. And especially I want to talk uh, about the academic support that we can offer them. So in daily life, uh, I think routine and schedule is essential for children because it helps them to manage the day better with less stress and the parents as well. So keeping things regular, regular meals, regular get up time and especially a regular outdoor time each day. It helps to lift the mood um, because we know sunlight and exercise outdoors helps dopamine levels. So that's a part that uh, I as a homeschooling family, I, I never miss. 
Um, and I think uh, many of the children who have to spend a lot of time sitting and in front of screens get restless and just wearied by all this uh, online time. So incorporating a daily hands-on task can really change things up and it gives them something very concrete uh, and real to do that actually as a result. So right now this might be if you see your child is getting very restless, say, okay, take a shovel, do the driveway, and maybe the neighbors too. Give them some exercise, change things up, get them away from the table and from the screen. Great idea. Um, or you could build a yeah. backyard hockey rink. Yes, as, as you're doing. Yes, <laughs> I think physical exercise and hands-on things that they can really see concrete results, whether it be even preparing a meal. My youngest guy, he loves setting the table, chopping up the salad or chopping up some mushrooms. And it always helps to kind of just shift the mood a bit because you're doing something very specific and not just staring at a screen. Right. And um, I think for children, real social interaction is essential. So seeing friends via Zoom or texting is not a real life interaction. It's virtual and the brain knows the difference. So if you have any uh, children or other students that are nearby in the neighborhood, just stepping out for a walk together outside or going skating or sledding, even for just a little part of the day, can really be uh, a world of difference in just mental well-being. I agree. I agree. Your Facebook friends are not your friends. No, they're, they're your pretend friends. <laughs> <laughs> if they don't give, if they wouldn't give you a kidney, they're not your friends. All right. Um, so, and then, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I was just going to say continue. I was, I was being a smart Alec. All right. All right. Well, um, so I have many parents who would ask, well, you know, how do I manage to do all this while I still have to work at home? And uh, the best advice is um, take your to-do list, cut it in half, and then cut it in half again and make that your goal for the day. And so really kind of just lower the expectation of how much you can get done. If you do have two parents at home, it can be very helpful just to have uh, kind of a two-hour kind of schedule where a parent can focus for two hours on work and then you switch roles. And that way, everybody can focus completely without being kind of half doing work and half assisting because that can be very distracting for everyone. Right, right. So that would be my advice there. So what, what should parents focus on then with regard to supporting their kids' academics? Right. I think that's the most crucial point. So now's the time for parents to be actively involved, involved in children's learning and don't assume that any of that learning is happening online. We've heard of kids playing roadblocks while being in class, of teachers turning off chat boxes when they're being asked questions or teachers just saying, don't even bother with this task anyhow. So learning might not be happening. So you need to help your kids focus on reading and on math. These are the two skills that are most crucial to all other learning. So social studies, geography, civics, it doesn't matter right now. Make sure your children's reading is supported and that they're reading lots and that they get support in reading if they need it. Um, if you have time, sit down with them. If you don't have time, there's many online resources that I've listed where children can listen to the audio version while they read along. Uh, there's an excellent one that I've just come across called Storytime from Space, where astronauts read to kids with uh, showing the text and the images. They're displayed and they're reading to them from space about space. That's awesome. So that's a great. It's, I know. I'll, it's I'll great. sign up for that. Yeah. And uh, with regard to math, uh, Khan Academy, a free resource that is awesome for any question. When your child comes up to you like minded today, like how do I plot a linear equation and you have no idea? 
literally type it into Khan Academy. It will give you the video, the answer, and it'll help guide your students through practice questions, and it's all free. Um, so again, don't assume that learning is happening. Be involved, especially in reading and in math, and make sure that your child is not falling through the cracks, um, because right now we, we really don't know how much learning is going on online. So this uh, homeschooling toolbox for non-homeschooling parents, you're putting this together. Uh, we can find this at humanitasfamily.net, humanitasfamily.net. Uh, yeah. is, is it right there on the, the homepage or how do we find it? It's live, it's up, it's under resources, it's the first item. And I've put many links there, including uh, chemistry practicing games, um, also lots of extracurriculars. Many kids are missing their extracurriculars. There's a place called OutSchool that offers anything from architecture with Minecraft to ukulele lessons. So, and they start <laughs> at $12 an hour. So there's lots of things to occupy your kids and to keep them involved and to keep you sane while you try and support your kids at home. Ukulele lessons, you don't say. Wonderful. All right, Ruth. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Ruth Gazgowski. And again, the website, humanitasfamily.net. H-U-M-A-N-I-T-A-S family.net. Humanitasfamily.net. Don't go away. Plenty of shows still to come. Hour two. Andrew Lawton from True North. Sue Ann Levy from True North. Dan McTeague from uh, Canadians for Affordable Energy. All coming your way. Hour two of the Richard Serra Show gets underway in moments. Stay with us. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Hey, Richard! Hello, yes. Can I help you? Richard! The Richard Serra Show continues on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. Ah, and there it is. Unvaccinated Quebec adults will have to pay a, a, health, a health contribution tax. Notice they don't call it a fine. Because you can challenge a fine in court, I guess. That's the idea. So you call it a tax. So we keep hearing that the unvaccinated are such a burden on the hospitals. Uh, and yet, and yet... The Quebec's, um, was it the health minister in Quebec that just resigned? Not the health minister, but um, not sure. let me find that story a little bit later. But uh, basically saying that it's not about the unvaccinated being a burden on the hospitals. This is their own doing. They're not building capacity, firing unvaccinated health workers, there's a backlog. We have long-term uh, patients. Maybe they come out of a long-term care facility. They're in the hospital. Then they can't send them back. They're clogging up the system. I don't mean I don't mean to be unkind when I say that, but that's just I'm, I'm just talking about the numbers here. So, how much are we paying these hospital administrators to figure this stuff out? This is the problem, as I see it. Not uh, the unvaccinated. A little bit later, Sue Ann Levy will be here, investigative journalist, True North contributor. We'll talk about the Toronto School Board voting 13 to 4 to make vaccine vaccines mandatory for students. The COVID vaccine, that is. 
And Dan McTagg will be here, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. We'll talk about the major supply chain disruption heading our way because our crime minister is um, refusing to back down. He's pushing ahead with a, a vaccine mandate for international truckers. And that could mean 10% of truckers are off the road. That doesn't sound like a lot, but that is a lot. And that could cause a major disruption. It could be higher than 10%. All right. Uh, it's, it's a festival of uh, True North contributors. Uh, Sue Ann Levy a little bit later. And uh, Andrew Lawton, another True North uh, reporter and host of the Andrew Lawton Show, joins us now. Andrew, welcome. Hey, it's good to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to see the uh, the planned True North 905 takeover is moving along swimmingly. <laughs> That's right. Worldwide media domination. It's about time. It's about time. <laughs> yeah, worldwide starting in Peel region. It'll be great. Uh, so I want to ask you first, uh, before we get rolling here with some other matters, uh, about Legault's announcement that he's going to uh, tax the unvaccinated. Uh, do you think other provinces might follow his lead or is this going to embolden our crazy prime minister? Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Oh, I, I fear this is just the beginning. I, I've been warning, I think actually on your show, as a matter of fact, being the, uh, the great bringer of, of good news and optimism that I am, I was fearing a, an Austria-style vaccine mandate in Canada since Austria imposed it just a, a couple of months back. And, and a vaccine mandate can take many different forms. Austria has gone very aggressive with it, saying that you can be fined I think it's like 7,000 euros if you're unvaccinated come February. But there are other subtler ways of doing it as well. And, and what Quebec is basically doing is saying that vaccination is mandatory and the punishment is paying this vaccination tax. And, and the devil's in the details. What happens if you don't pay it? Uh, that's the, the big question. And if there's any criminal or administrative penalty that can be applied against you, make no mistake, this is a vaccine mandate. He's just not having the guts to call it that. Right. So it's supposedly because the unvaccinated are a burden on the hospitals. And yet now we have uh, following in the wake of the governor of New York admitting that the numbers uh, on hospitalization have been fudged, uh, that something like 43 percent of hospitalizations uh, are people with COVID, not from COVID. Uh, now, uh, Catherine uh, or Christine Elliott has admitted the same thing here in Ontario. I think another province just announced the same thing. Uh, and then we had Anthony Fury, uh, a contributor to True North, also writing in the uh, in the Sun um, about these healthcare workers who 
uh, were he had to protect their anonymity because they weren't allowed to speak out about this officially. They're talking about basically how the hospital administration is just bungling this, uh, you know, the firing unvaccinated health workers is a part of it. Uh, but there are other systemic problems. It's it, that's what's causing uh, our capacity problems. It's not the unvaccinated, clearly. No, and one of the big things, too, it sounds like, and obviously this was just announced a couple of hours ago, but it sounds like this health care charge that uh, Francois Legault is promoting has nothing to do with your actual consumption of the health care system. So uh, just to use myself, for example, I, I, you know, I try to work out, I'm trying to eat well and all that, but no one would look at me and say, oh, this guy is the, the, the portrait of health. I'm a bigger guy, which statistically comes along with health issues. I'm fully vaccinated. That's a choice I made. People can make their own choices. You look at uh, the big story in Australia this past week, Novak Djokovic, one of the world's uh, great uh, tennis players who's been detained by the Australian authorities because he's not vaccinated. So does anyone think that Novak Djokovic is less healthy than me, than Andrew Law. And if so, well, thank you very much for your endorsement. But the reality is the government is not even taking an approach based on consumption of healthcare services. They're charging, it could be the healthiest person in the world who jogs every day, who runs, who works out, who eats raw foods. They're charging them the, the healthcare surcharge, but not people that are making a litany of other unhealthy choices that could be putting them on a regular basis before the healthcare system. Precisely. Excellent point. Uh, just have a few minutes here. I want to ask you about uh, recent statements you made, uh, and that is, I think I know where you're heading with this, but the pandemic is over when Canadians say it's over. What do you mean by that? Well, I, I think the reality is I, I've gotten very frustrated with the moving goalposts, you know, going back to the mother of all moving goalposts, two weeks to flatten the curve to just a couple of weeks longer to when there's a vaccine to when 75 percent of the population is vaccinated to when 100 percent now is vaccinated. And it seems like any time we clear a hurdle, that hurdle all of a sudden no longer is the one we needed to clear. And and basically the frustration that I approach this issue through that you're alluding to in that in that piece there is one that is where Canadians are the ones who get to decide. If you're waiting for a, a gold engraved invitation from government officials to start living your life, uh, the pandemic's over, it's not going to come. You've got to decide for yourself, I am no longer going to live in fear. I'm going to travel. I'm going to do this. And the number of people that I know just anecdotally who have decided to, you know, relocate to Florida or Texas, that, that's their own way of saying the pandemic's over, I'm done. I, I think we're going to see a lot more of that, but you can do it at home too. Uh, one other item I wanted to ask you about, um, you were tweeting about receiving a, a poll from Main Street and uh, they're, they were trying to research uh, voter intentions for the next provincial election and uh, in June. And you noticed that, uh, you know, they mentioned the, the progressive conservatives. They mentioned the liberals, the NDP. Then they mentioned Raymond uh, Babber, who doesn't have a party. I think they mentioned Ontario first, which uh, that's Derek Sloan's party. Although I don't think they have any riding association, so it sort of exists on paper only. Uh, nowhere did they mention New Blue, which is actually a party with a sitting MPP and close to 120 riding associations, I think, and 50 candidates or something like that. Uh, was that was that poll from Main Street? Was that bought and paid for by, I don't know, the, the progressive conservatives or, or Roman Baber? What do you think is happening there? Well, I, I should I should make one slight correction there. They didn't even mention Derek Sloan's Ontario party. They mentioned ah. the Ontario First Party, which is uh, Randy Hillier's ah. party. I mean, Ontario politics right now, every time you blink, there's a new 
uh, there's a new right of center party right. coming up. Although that's not officially my, a party either. That's not a party either. No, it hasn't even been registered. No, my and and the, the ordering was funny because it was like I I I normally don't take telemarketing calls, but I, I like polling calls because I like knowing what questions are being asked out there. And and it was option one, a new party by Roman Neighbor, and and you know all the established parties are down at like option you know four, five, six, seven, that sort of thing. If I had to guess, I'd say it was the Roman Neighbor. Uh, purchase poll. Uh, the fact that he put himself first, left out Jim Carajalios, left out Derek Sloan, that would be my guess. Certainly it wasn't a poll done by any political party that, that's established because they tend to be a lot more wise about how they craft them because I, I know the results of this one would be not particularly useful. Uh, so I, I think it was someone that wanted to perhaps put themselves earlier and hope some people just press one to make the call end. Andrew, quickly, how do we uh, watch the Andrew Lawton show? Well, you can head on over to andrewlawtonshow.com. And also, if I may, I, I write about a lot of this on my new Substack, and that's over at andrewlawton.substack.com. And you can subscribe for uh, free, and I, I'd love to see everyone there. Fantastic. All right, Andrew, we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much. Hey, anytime, Richard. Thank you. Andrew Lawton, True North. All right. The school board, the Toronto District School Board, voted 13 to 4 for mandatory vaccines for students. Talk about, you know, not reading the room. Sue Ann Levy joins us next. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Welcome back. Earlier when I was uh, talking with Andrew Lawton, I was trying to remember this. Uh, it just popped into my mind uh, that I had seen the story, but I didn't have the name in front of me. I was struggling to uh, to remember who just resigned in Quebec. Uh, and it was uh, Quebec's uh, public health director. Horatio Arruda, he resigned because of a, an erosion in public trust uh, and also, uh, you know, brought up in, 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 in um, I guess, meetings that the uh, the strain on the uh, the healthcare system in Quebec is because healthcare or hospital administrators are just bungling this. And uh, we're seeing that here in Ontario as well. All right. I want to uh, move along and talk about the Toronto District School Board. Last Thursday, they voted 13 to 4. Uh, to make COVID vaccines mandatory and uh, a condition for school uh, for students returning to school on January 17. So Ann Levy, investigative journalist, True North contributor and uh, author of Underdog Confessions of a Right Wing Gay Jewish Muckraker joins us once again. Hello, Sue Ann. How are you? Hi, Richard. How are you? Very well. Before we get rolling on the school board, let me can we get a quick update on your mom? I know uh, we talked oh about this God. before Christmas uh, and she was. Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah. Well, it, I don't know. It's like the crazy circus. So she got the go ahead to leave. Uh, she was supposed to fly down on Saturday. I went to the facility where she was supposed to go because she does need some care. And they have an outbreak here in Florida. Ah. Uh. So I've had to delay it another three weeks. Uh, I have canceled so many flights and uh, the insurance we're hanging on with. So let's cross our fingers that February 1st, she'll be able to come down. All right. Yes. You were trying to to fly her out of Ontario. She's in a retirement home. They were sort of in lockdown. You wanted to get her out of there to come to Florida to, uh, you know, (laughs) to enjoy some uh, some family time and some warm sunshine. All right. Well, uh, good luck. Uh, Keep fighting the good fight on that. So thank you. Uh, the uh, the Toronto District School Board on Thursday voted 13 to 4 to make COVID vaccines for students a condition uh, for them returning to in-person learning on uh, Monday. Um, 
Tell me a little bit more about uh, were there consultations Were there were, were parents allowed into this meeting when the vote took place? What was what was the atmosphere no. like? It was a special meeting and it happened very quickly. An hour. Uh, five trustees did not attend the meeting or were not there for the vote. Um Parents were upset because they hadn't been consulted. One trustee uh, and another supported him was trying to get the whole idea sent back until they could consult. And he was outvoted by 13 others who really pushed and tried to intimidate him not to go ahead with uh, any sort of debate. And the uh, board, the chair, the person who was chairing the meeting that day, Georgia Mammoliti's son, Christopher Mammoliti, uh, found, you know, all kinds of obscure reasons why they shouldn't debate this. And, you know, part of it is that they had supported this idea since last August when the Ontario Public School Boards Association had put it forward. So it's just it, it boggles the mind. Uh, I mean, it's not this is not limited to the Toronto District School Board, but they, do they not look at the data? Do they not understand that children are not a risk from getting seriously ill or from spreading COVID? Well, Richard, I think this is all about pacifying teachers. So, you know, there was a huge uproar the weekend before everybody was supposed to return to class and teachers were saying they were in a panic. Social media was on fire with all these teachers talking about uh, how terrible it was going to be for them, how unsafe it was going to be in the classroom. Of course, all in the pretext that they were trying to hate, save kids, help kids, keep them safe. It wasn't about kids at all because kids are a low, a low risk. But the teachers and some very fearful parents kind of pushed the envelope. And that that's really why classrooms stay closed for the last two weeks. So in other words, it's about a bunch of neurotic hypochondriacs who don't <laughs> understand the science and don't understand that, you know, you're fully vaxxed. OK, so uh, two vaccines, a booster like me, the teachers are all, you know, boosted up. Uh, they're wearing they want to wear. And that was the other thing they want to wear, have N95 masks provided to them. They were going on about how they had all these breathing faces in front of them. These breathing faces, of course, are masked as well. Uh, I mean, it was crazy talk, absolute crazy talk. But they had whipped themselves into an absolute frenzy. We'll uh, we'll take a time out, Sue. And when we come back, we'll talk about how really the the Toronto District School Board the progressives on there, just a reflection of the Ontario Public School Boards Association. Um, and uh, we'll uh, we'll delve into that as well. Sue Ann Levy is uh, with True North as a contributor and the author of Underdog Confessions of a Right Wing Gay Jewish Muckraker. Back with more of our conversation in three minutes. Don't go away. The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. And we're back with Sue Ann Levy, investigative journalist, uh, True North contributor, and discussing the Toronto District School Board's vote last Thursday, 13 to 4, in favor of making uh, the COVID vaccine mandatory and a condition to return to in-person learning on January 17th. Sue Ann, what is this Ontario Public School Board's association? Well, it's a group of trustees and school boards that form together, that have formed together for many, many, many years. And part of their mandate is to keep the trustee job going. Let's 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 not, uh, you know, pull any punches here. Um, and they do negotiate with the government as well. But 
what I've seen over the last 20 years, because I covered education in the 90s, is they were a very middle of the road organization, not left, not right, you know, uh, represented school boards fairly down the middle. Now they're all advocates. Now they're all these crazy trustees who are tripping over each other to be woke. So uh, the Ontario Public School Boards Association came out with this request and has reiterated it, I think, four times in letters, open letters to the government to have all kids in Ontario uh, vaccinated, whether parents like it or not. You know, you were you point out in your article at True North that they were even at uh, pushing for vaccinations for five to 11 year olds before it was even approved. Exactly. So the the vaccine was approved in November, hastily approved, I I believe. And uh, they were pushing for it back in August. So they were, you know, preparing themselves. So you tell me that they're not. uh, It's a very incestuous group of people in education. You tell me that they're not all connected with the teachers and the unions, trustees, really a lot of the trustees who run school boards now are backed by unions, they're campaigned for by unions, and they represent union interests, not the kids' interests. Let's talk about that incestuous relationship because when someone uh, challenged the, uh, the Toronto District School Board on mandated vaccines, they said that, oh, we're only following the guidance from Toronto Public Health. Yes. Well, Toronto Public Health, uh, a member of the Toronto District School Board sits on Toronto Public Health. Trustees from the Toronto School Board, of course, sit on OPSPA. They're all really interconnected. And Richard, I found out how incestuous they were this past weekend when they all went on Twitter to complain that there was tremendous pushback from parents and some pretty angry words exchanged. And they were all complaining about it, virtue signaling about it. And I said, well, maybe, you know, I suggested maybe parents are are angry that you've made this uh, you made this uh, decision arbitrarily and autocratically. And I was uh, I was intimidated, screamed at on Twitter and the communications flack with OPSPA actually blocked me on Twitter. Right. Right. Um, well, yeah, but parents are justifiably angry. So yeah. how much. How much uh, a power do they have, uh, the Toronto District School Board and OPSPA? Do, uh, do, do they have the premier's ear? Do they have major influence? I think um, I think that the premier was willing enough to delay the start of school till next Monday. But I don't think they're going to take that step to push for mandatory vaccines. Now, let's make it clear that they want COVID-19 vaccine included under the Immunization Act. So it means that kids would have to be vaccinated just like they're vaccinated for measles or smallpox or whatever. And the whole thing is that if they're not vaccinated and it's put under the act, then they can't come to school and parents could be fined. I mean, it's pretty draconian. There are exemptions, religious and ethical ones, but they have to go through a whole rigmarole, parents do, to get an exemption. So in other words, because this is part of the Immunization Act, which is provincial, uh, Mm -hmm. just because the Toronto District School Board says we want vaccines, uh, COVID vaccines mandatory as a condition for returning to school, it's up to it it has to be passed by the province. It has to be. And let's hope that cooler heads prevail at the province. I mean, remember, Kieran Moore, the medical officer of health, wanted kids to go back to school two weeks ago. So I think let's hope there's some sanity at that level. Right. Although not much these days. <laughs> That's true. Well, this, the, the Immunization Act, there's, a, there's an interesting word, immunization. 
I mean, mm-hmm. these these vaccines, they have proven not to be immunizing. So I don't no. know. Can you attach these vaccines to the same immunization uh, schedule? I don't know that you can make that case. Well, at this point, we're talking about Omicron. Omicron is proven to be pretty mild. Um, the number of people in ICUs or, you know, as number as many vaccinated as unvaccinated. And, you know, the uh, impact, there haven't been a huge number of deaths, like when my father died of the real COVID. Um, so I think there's a lot of hysteria, really a lot of hysteria over nothing. And I blame you know, the media, not you and I, of course, no, but I no. blame the media, I blame politicians, uh, blame medical officers of health who have just given some of these parents the reason to be paranoid. Absolutely. Fear mongering has just been unprecedented common sense, and reckless. Yeah, common yeah. sense has not prevailed, certainly not in this wave. All right, Sue Ann. Well, we'll watch this one with interest. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, just a reminder. Uh, still available uh, at Amazon and elsewhere. Underdog Confessions of a Right-Wing Gay Jewish Muckraker. Sue Ann, we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Well, thanks, Richard. Have a good day. You too. All right. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau pushing ahead with a vaccine mandate for international truckers, despite increasing pressure from critics who say it will exacerbate driver shortages, drive up the price of goods imported from the United States. Dan McTagg. President of Canadians for Affordable Energy is next with that story. Just having a little chin wag on the Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. New rules coming into effect Saturday, this coming Saturday, which will mandate COVID vaccinations for truck drivers crossing the Canada-U.S. border. And uh, that is only going to exacerbate supply chain issues in a sector that's already facing a labor shortage. Dan McTagg is the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, welcome once again. How are you? Richard, good to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, So we're hearing varying numbers about the number of truckers basically that could be forced off the road. And I think the um, the Canadian Trucking Alliance is projecting 10 to 15 percent of cross-border truckers. But that's Canadian truckers going the other way, right? Does that take into account the U.S. truckers coming this way? I doubt it. And I don't know the mechanism they can use to enforce it. Sure, they can say, hey, you know, show us the documents, your QR code. Um, but I'm just not sure how you manage to shut down uh, a delivery that has to be just in time, whether that's food or whether that's manufacturing, without creating a cataclysmic snowball effect on the supply chain of everything we take for granted, uh, not just in this province, but across the country. Um, I'm not sure this is very well thought out. I understand the idea behind it. Full disclosure, I'm triple vaxxed. Uh, but I don't think this is a very bright way of doing this. And I think these things take a little bit longer, uh, especially given the acute situation we find ourselves in right now in which the supply chains have been completely frazzled to such a point um, that I think we're going to start to see it in ways that we possibly and probably haven't imagined. And that will, you know, the grocery store will only be one small element of that at the precise time in which we need more. We're going to wind up with less at a precise time, which demand is increasing. We're going to see uh, shortages uh, perhaps in ways that we haven't seen, certainly since the uh, Second World War. 
I'm already seeing empty shelves in grocery stores now. Yes. Um, and incidentally, just on a side sidebar note, I don't know if, if you've noticed this. For the first time, um, I found U.S. eggs. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. In a grocery store, American eggs. I've never seen that before. Have you seen that? Yeah, I haven't seen it, but it's part of the uh, free trade agreement or uh, the uh, U.S. Uh, FTA, uh, however you want to refer to it as. It looks like the egg marketing board, uh, the cheese, the dairy have all started to slowly but surely be unwound. So uh, expect more in the days to come um, as that whole, uh, if you will, barrier is uh, now lifted in favor uh, of, uh, of American producers. Oh, OK. I thought I wasn't sure if it was related to uh, supply chain issues or not, because uh, the uh, the U.S. eggs were about a dollar less per dozen than the the Canadian eggs. Well, that's uh, some good news. Um, so I was reading a couple of uh, weeks ago from a uh, representative with the U.S. Trucking uh, Association or Alliance. And they said at that time that uh, uh, 10 to 15 percent uh, of truckers who refuse to get vaxxed or disclose their medical status, if they don't show up for work, that could have catastrophic um, effects on the U.S. economy. So if we're looking at uh, 10 to 15 percent of Canadian truckers, combine that with uh, U.S. truckers or th that are going to be off the road. Uh, I mean, what 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 kind of impact do you see that happening having here? Well, look, the biggest issue in the United States right now is the price of gasoline, not because dynamic take thinks it's a great issue. Americans take energy a lot more seriously than Canadians do, especially when it comes to price. We can blame Biden for his green ideas and uh, we can look at, uh, uh, you know, the fact that uh, there is no more money for energy companies, but specifically to the price is attached to the fact uh, is attached to the fact that there aren't enough drivers. So you're now dealing in a situation in which you have fewer drivers and you're going to make greater demands on them and you're going to exclude some. It's a problem. And I, I'm not so sure that people have really understood this, but for the past few months prior to Omicron, this was a big issue in the United States as it is in Canada. Look at the uh, want ads, look at the help search want ads. Uh, you'll find a lot of jobs available for anybody who wants to be involved in trucking, especially long haul trucking. Uh, I'm no expert in that field. I've done a little bit of work in years in years past on regulations and safety and things. Uh, but it seems to me that this kind of imposition, while I understand its health uh, intentions, couldn't happen at a possible worse time. 
Uh, so you're dealing with a crisis. We don't have enough truckers. We don't have enough goods to be shipped to where we need to have them. The uh, whole system of just in time is now in 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 uh, in shambles, and this is only going to make a very bad situation that much worse. And I I have a feeling that if it's imposed in the way that uh, some are suggesting it will be, uh, I think we should just basically uh, decide uh, that we should curtail our economic activity correspondingly by ten to fifteen percent, which would be an impossibility and uh, likely to lead to unintended consequences, far-reaching economic consequences consequences, the likes of which uh, I don't think we're really prepared for. Uh, if you think it's bad now, you ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, Dan, hold on. We'll take a quick time. I'll come back and discuss further. Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. And again, uh, the VAX mandate affecting international truckers taking effect this Saturday. Is this just a game of chicken? We'll find out. Back with more in a moment. Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. Back, Dan McTagg stays with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. So, this Saturday, the uh, vaccine mandate will apply to international truckers. That could take 10 to 15 percent of truckers off the road who are refusing the jab or are refusing to disclose their uh, medical status. Uh, and uh, that could have catastrophic effects on the supply chain, on uh, on uh, the food supply. Uh, Dan, would it be would it be alarmist to suggest people should, I don't know, stock up on on um, perishable items or or sorry, non-perishables uh, uh, in anticipation of this? Are we going to see some dr- dramatic food shortages? Well, we produce a little bit of our own, but uh, hot houses. Uh, but I would suggest that uh, anything coming from Mexico, from the United States, uh, may very well be, uh, you know, in some. Uh, maybe in some jeopardy. And I, I would be watching very closely the news reports on the weekend as to how uh, this is going to unfold, whether there is a log jam at our borders uh, with truckers trying to get in, as well as those who are perhaps trying to move out. And I understand the uh, the importance and significance, but uh, I think by these things don't take a very long time because of the finite way in which we we run operations uh you know as i mentioned earlier the just-in-time model which has been around for some time very effectively uh that efficiency could be thrown out the window and with it uh the availability of the things we often take for granted like fresh produce is, is trudeau um playing a game of chicken is he getting bad advice what what what, what do you think is going on here I don't know. Uh, you know, these folks have a tendency of having the, uh, the Midas touch in reverse. Everything they touch turns to garbage. And I, I don't say that tongue in cheek. I say that because everything they, they do uh, usually winds up costing us a lot more, creating a, quite a mess. And quite, it, it takes a long time to extricate ourselves from some of these problems. It's one thing to have prices going up. It's another thing not to have product or the availability of the things that we need uh, in a modern economy. And so I suspect that uh, if this starts to hurt Toronto uh, and some of the major cities and people start realizing that they're doing without I'm sure the government's default will be, well, this is just COVID. Get used to it. We have to do these things. But after the despicable comments the prime minister made referring to people who didn't vaccinate, I may agree, disagree with them, but I would never, uh, you know, uh, intimate French, I would never suggest for a moment that these people were somehow misogynistic, 
or that they are racist, which is tantamount to basically saying this prime minister doesn't care. He has an agenda. It's woke. Uh, and he's going to use this as an opportunity to uh, to shame the small group of people that he feels uh, are lurking around the corner. He's a very dangerous leader. And, and this is, uh, I think, going to create a bit of a crisis, the likes of which we have not seen. Uh, and it may finally wake up woke Toronto voters here in Toronto uh, in, in the GTA who have been supporting him all along. Uh, would you hazard a guess as to uh, how this could affect food prices in terms of, I don't know, inf- uh, inflation and in a, in a percentage? What would we are we looking at uh, a 10 percent increase in food, 20 percent? Well, I, I, I'll leave to agronomists and, and economists, but I would expect that, uh, uh, you know, if we could see a situation where supplies may become more difficult to get to acquire. And those supplies may very well, you know, in the month or so, raise uh, food prices and other prices as well. But I would think that the big impact is not going to be so much the price as it is simply not having what you expect. And, uh, you know, so think of celery, think of lettuce. Uh, think of the many products that we bring in from the United States and, as I said earlier, from Mexico uh, that we often take for granted. I guess uh, for some uh, and the woke out there, you won't be able to have your uh, your avocado uh, <laughs> sandwich at toast in the morning uh, because that, too, is also important. So let's be very clear about this. Uh, I would think that by the end of the month, uh, we will see a telltale sign as to whether there was no problems. And I doubt that's going to happen or whether this is going to be highly disruptive, which I expect it to be. It seems so all unnecessary. Um, first of all, you've got a driver traveling alone in his cab. Uh, you know, they drive up to the dock. They uh, they can un- unload outside. Um, they can have regular testing. Why this insistence, particularly now that we're in what looks to be, uh, fingers crossed, the latter stages of, of uh, COVID, as each variant comes along, it gets more and more mild. Uh, more contagious, yes, but less and less, uh, or, um, less and less deadly. Uh, why, why, why don't they just look at some some serious accommodations here? Divide and conquer. Uh, this is a government that has been able to win on wedge issues. It doesn't need a majority of people to be on side. It needs twenty to thirty percent, and it needs those concentrated in urban areas, uh, as it has done not once, not twice, but three times. Uh, even with a lesser amount of people supporting it in uh, in 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 an area where the where turnout is consistently falling, I don't think the concert the liberals can sit, can say very fairly or or very effectively that this is about uh, healthcare. This is really about uh, uh, sending a message, um, and it is very much in line with the kind of authoritarianism and the use of COVID to achieve indirectly that which they can't achieve directly and. For me, of course, it isn't just about COVID. It is about uh, the next shoe to fall uh, and to drop that will be on the issue of uh, climate change. So they'll use the same kind of strictures and regulations and uh, heavy handedness. Uh, But you know what? Uh, it, It really comes down to the lazy individuals out there who voted for these people or who didn't think much of ensuring that they had a party in representing us in Ottawa uh, that has the broader public interest. I agree with you. I think Omicron and COVID are in their last days. Uh, I think I'm hearing that from a lot of experts. Uh, why this is being done now at the last moment, I think is maybe to distract 
from what this government's about to do, and that's to really upend, uh, you know, uh, the uh, political balance that we have in this country uh, in in a way to mask their poor economic performance, which is going to start to hurt. Uh, so we won't be able to blame the economy on their bad mismanagement. We're going to blame the economy on the fact that the just-in-time doesn't work anymore. It's a pretty brilliant strategy, but people like yourself and myself, I'm sure, will be calling it uh, offside each and every time. Right. Brilliant, but sinister. You know, truckers uh, are a pretty independent, fiercely independent. They can be a stubborn uh, bunch. They may be the saving grace here because uh, if if the economy comes to a standstill or shortages become uh, exacerbated and food prices you know, start to go through the roof, uh, that could exert a lot of pressure. Uh, you know, I know the, 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 the Privy Council, they do all of their internal polling for the prime minister. That message could get back to the prime minister and the, and the liberals very quickly, hopefully. Uh, and I, I think it's because, you know, truck drivers, they listen to talk radio. They sit in their cabs much of the time. They're, they're listening to talk radio. If you want to find out what's going on in the world, uh, you talk to truck drivers and taxi drivers because they listen exactly. to talk radio. So the truck drivers could be our way out of this. Ultimately, what do you think? Well, I think so. And, you know, we're, you're in an area that is uh, perhaps home to uh, the uh, the network of trucking in and out. My wife works in Brampton, uh, Mississauga. This is really the hub uh, for trucking in, uh, in, in central Canada. Uh, and I think if you start to mess around uh, with the fragility uh, and with the efficiency uh, and the hard work of our uh, of our truckers, you're messing uh, with a much bigger fight than I think you're prepared to handle. And so I think if Trudeau believes that this is the way to go, I hope he's right. Uh, and there is no disruption. But I've been I've seen this before. Uh, this is going to uh, this isn't going to end well. It's going to be quite a mess. And uh, we just have to keep focused on the guy who is responsible for it. If this really messes up by the end of the month and prices go up and you have less product and we are in a, you know, a, a, a no growth situation, a stunted growth situation. Well, you have no one to blame here in Mississauga and Brampton in Oakville, where I am, than the people you supported to put in office for a third time. And it'll be Justin Trudeau and his, uh, his his band of misfits. And by the way, I served as a Liberal MP for 18 years, for those who seem to have forgotten. And I spent 37 years. And this is not the same Liberal Party, pragmatic, strong, uh, big tent Liberal Party that I belong to. This is a, an aberration. Uh, this is a mongrel party that uh, does not have the interest of Canadians at heart. It has its own survivability with a very narrow wedge of people uh, pushing identity politics and playing games with a very serious issue like a pandemic. This isn't even Ed Broadbent's NDP. I mean, <laughs> this is far <laughs> left of Ed Broadbent. Uh, it's unrecognizable. All right, uh, Dan, we will watch this one with interest. Um, this could get serious real fast. Dan, thank you so much for your time as always. Great to be here. Thanks, Richard. Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, affordableenergy.ca. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Jody, Jacob, and Brandon. I'll be back tomorrow, God willing. The Brian Crombie Hour is next. Be well, find joy, hold fast, be kind, but push back. I'll speak with you tomorrow at four. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken.
That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you tomorrow afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.